Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's a new dawn for defense. In the most significant shake-up since the Cold War, the government has announced a raft of cuts, as well as significant investment in new, cutting-edge technology. The changes will see the loss of more than 100 aircraft, dozens of tanks, and almost 10,000 soldiers, as the army shrinks to its smallest size since the 1700s. We have a duty to protect new domains, as well as continuing investment in the traditional ones, but always adapting to the threat, Mr. Speaker. History shows us time and time again that failing to do so risks irrelevance and defeat. As a threat changes, we must change with it. With growing threats and global instability, can the military really be expected to do more with less? Former defence chiefs have expressed doubts. I'm thinking of Russia and China. They still possess large numbers. And if all we've got is high-tech stuff, and they've got, I don't know, half a million troops that can come across the border at you, then those high-tech capabilities aren't going to be much good. Is that right? Or will technology fundamentally change the battlefield forever? I would never have gone on patrol in Afghanistan without an Afghan interpreter. I bet you in 10 years' time, ships battalions, whatever it might be on on a battlefield of the future, will not go to war without a data scientist being at the heart of what they do. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, an interview with the head of the military on the future of defence. The government has released its long-awaited defence review. Amid fears of cuts and the promise of global ambitions, I went to meet... General Nick Carter, the Chief of the Defence Staff, the professional head of the armed forces. In his office at the MOD, complete with some rather striking mementos. Tell me about that. What are we looking at? its I've never seen anything like it in an office before. No, so it's a, a gold-plated Heclecock 9mm machine pistol... And it was given to me by my close friend, General Bajwa, who's the chief of the army staff in Pakistan. A gold machine gun, a thank you gift from the head of the army in Pakistan. General Sir Nick Carter has been heavily involved in the region for years, having led NATO troops in the south of neighbouring Afghanistan more than a decade ago. 
And indeed, when it was given to me, the head of the intelligence organization in Pakistan leant across and he said, you really are now the man with the golden gun. <laughs> anyway, it's had to be decommissioned because when it was given to me, it was in working order. And indeed, it came with 100 rounds of 9mm ammunition, which there have been times when I have been tempted to use it, it has to be said. <laughs> Useful in meetings. As the UK military navigates its way out of Afghanistan, 20 years after the start of the war, it's now looking ahead to the threats it faces in the future. It's a big day for the armed forces, and this review comes at a time when the world has rarely seemed quite so unstable. Tell us about the threats that we as a country face. What are the ones that keep you awake at night, which you most worried about? We now have assertive authoritarian rivals who are seeking to achieve their objectives without resorting to a hot war. And I think in so doing, what worries us, and I think also worries others who see regional powers behaving like this as well, is the potential for unwarranted escalation leading to miscalculation. And there are a lot of conflicts and potential conflict spots around the world at the moment, and any of those could very easily get exaggerated into something that becomes rather more than simply a regional conflict. And that's what would worry me, and indeed, to use your term, keep me awake. Russia has been portrayed as a threat to the UK and the West since the days of the Cold War. Vladimir Putin has always publicly played that down. Speaking in 2016, he said... Imaginary, mythical threats are being constantly presented, like the notorious Russian military threat. Really, it is a profitable activity, which allows new military budgets to be approved in respective countries. But in the early days of 2018... We have become accustomed to Russian jets encroaching on our airspace. The first sea lord told Sky News. This is a resurgence that has come very quickly. It, it is an intensifying resurgence of capability and scale. Then, in Salisbury. And so this appears to have been a state-sponsored assassination attempt after all. Statement, the Prime Minister. It is now clear that Mr Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. And later that year... In a highly unusual move, the head of the army's gone public to demand more money for the defence budget, saying without it, Britain will be vulnerable to multiple threats from Russia. The UK government still considers Russia a threat. Here's Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab speaking last year. We've got uh, a long period recognising the enduring and significant threat posed by Russia to the UK, including in relation to cyber. This week, the Times reported that Russia was even jamming signals at an RAF base in Cyprus in an act of electronic warfare. But Russia is not the only country being viewed with suspicion. There is no question that China will pose a great challenge for an open society such as ours. Name names. Which countries in particular? Is this Russia? Is it China too? Russia and China are who we would normally describe as assertive authoritarian rivals. I'm always careful about the language because I judge Russia to be the acute threat and I would regard China as being more of a chronic challenge. Uh, it doesn't need to be a threat. And what is it that you're most worried about them doing? You know, it, it's quite clear that nobody at the moment particularly wants to go to war. What is the, the fear of, of, in terms of their behaviour? I think we've seen great powers using fait accompli 
strategies to achieve their objectives. We've seen that particularly, of course, with Crimea and Ukraine, as far as Russia is concerned. And I think we've seen quite a lot of that happening in the Pacific as well. And I think our worry would be that these sorts of activities lead to us being bowled a bit like a frog. The old analogy of the frog when it's thrown into cold water and boiled up slowly, it'll probably stick, but it certainly won't if it jumps into boiling water. So where are we on that boiling process (laughs) at the moment? Well, I think there are a number of parts of the world where there is this sense that perhaps we've created vacuums in the past and what we see are potential rivals achieving their objectives and perhaps filling the spaces that we've perhaps left unfilled. And for people who don't watch defence on a daily basis, I mean, would you describe us as being at war already? I mean, I wouldn't use the term war. I mean, I think we are in a form of competition. And sometimes if you talk about the new uh, domains of space and cyber, perhaps touching on conflict. But no, people don't want to go to war, which is tremendous. But of course, what it also means is that you need to find other ways of prevailing in this constant competition. And I think a lot of people have styled this as being the grey zone because it's a a blurring of the distinctions between peace and war. And a lot of the traditional distinctions that were in place during the Cold War and while I was growing up, like the distinctions between your foreign policy and your home policy, like the distinctions between virtual and reality and between state and non-state, are blurring. And you see that particularly with some of our authoritarian rivals who are using organisations like the Wagner Group to achieve their ends. So mercenaries. But on a deniable and a plausibly deniable basis. So that's Russia carrying out effectively its foreign policy in countries, but hiding behind what looks like a band of mercenaries to do it. Indeed, and we see that in Africa and we see that in parts of the Middle East as well. And it is exactly that. And we've certainly seen a good deal of it in Syria. But it's not just Russia who are doing this. There are other countries probably can see the ways to, to use things that are technically deniable. And for people who are unfamiliar with the term grey zone, I mean, what exactly does it mean? Where are you seeing these people acting? Is it just mercenaries or what sort of behaviours are you seeing that alarm you? Well, I think it's it's also in cyber and in space. I mean, certainly in space, you see quite a lot of activity, which is certainly not friendly. You see people putting up... What does up, that mean? Well, you see anti-satellite type tests going on. You see other countries manoeuvring their satellites to become close proximity to your own satellites. So there's a there's a competition which can easily end up with there being some irresponsible activity, which could easily lead to a mess in space. So you see it happening there. You obviously see it in cyber and people are forever talking about the nature of the, the sort of offensive cyber attacks that occur on different countries and on different parts of different institutions. And then, of course, you also see it in terms of misinformation and disinformation. So what has occurred is that the character of conflict has evolved significantly over the last 10 years, predominantly because of the pervasiveness of information and the rapid pace of technological change. And that's given those who would wish to make mischief the new tools, tactics and techniques with which to do it. So how should the military operate in the grey zone? How do you counter threats from countries who are constantly targeting Britain, but without officially being at war? This marks the most significant shift in military thinking in generations. Clausewitz, the Prussian general who's considered the father of modern warfare and the most quoted source in defence, described war as an extension of policy by other means. So when the politics fails, war begins. But now, the modern military would be operating against hostile countries long before war was declared and whilst the politics continued. 
You know, the military is just one of the instruments of national power, and it needs to be integrated alongside the other instruments of statecraft or national power in order to be effective, which perhaps goes back to your classifies. And the fact of the matter is, it's about ideology, it's about diplomacy, it's about development aid, it's about economics. So if we are to be effective in the world I've described, it'll be the country that is best able to integrate all of those different instruments of statecraft to the best effect that will be successful. Our armed forces are better off being employed and active and doing stuff in the areas that matter to us as a country than metaphorically sitting on their Bergens or their large packs, as it were, waiting for the whistle to go up. They need to be engaged. And it's that sense of being engaged, which is a very different posture for us. And that doing stuff will be with partners and allies. And it'll be about trying to avoid these vacuums being filled by our rivals. Doing stuff is a great term, but what will it mean for your average soldier? I mean, what will they be doing? You know, for example, there's lots of interest in the work of 77 Brigade, which sort of does information, disinformation. What, what exactly is, is the role? What, what will the military be doing in terms of the grey zone? Well, I'll come back to 77 Brigade, but what I think you'll see, traditionally the British Army since 1971 has trained in Western Canada on the plains. Well, nowadays one's training needs to be in a place where people can notice it so that you are having an impression on your allies and particularly on your potential opponents. So the training itself is a threat. So the training in itself is a threat. But also you use the training as a means of improving your interoperability and your relationship with partners. So our training will move. Our training will take place in those parts of the world where it can be seen and it can be useful in terms of the effect it's achieving. So that's perhaps in East Africa, certainly in Kenya. It's also in the Gulf, particularly in Oman, but also in parts of Europe where it can be more valuable in terms of achieving other objectives rather than simply training yourselves. In many ways, a lot of the training and exercise will probably in the future be described as operations because we're seeking to achieve an operational effect. It's a surrogate for warfare. But equally, what we'll do is our Navy will project its influence more widely than perhaps has been the case in the past. We'll see some of our operational patrol vessels being based in places that put them perhaps better able to access areas which matter to us, like, for example, the Gulf of Guinea, where one can reach it easily from our base in Gibraltar, or potentially Singapore, where, again, we can easily reach into the Indian Ocean or further afield into the Pacific if that is necessary, to provide some basis whereby our presence is obvious. But it'll also mean that the army will restructure slightly. And what we've learned over the course of the last 10 years of our activities is that actually the task of partnering and training both regular and irregular forces, particularly to get after counter-terrorism on behalf of our indigenous partners, is a good thing to be doing. And we need more capability to be able to do that. And that's one of the reasons why the White Paper will talk about a brigade of rangers for additional special forces battalions who are particularly trained to be able to deal with working and partnering indigenous forces rather than specifically operating on their own. Another battlefield that's fiercely contested now is information, and the British military have already entered the fray with 77 Brigade, which specialises in information operations and counter-disinformation. Another area for growth for the military is cyber, an important platform for competing in the grey zone. (laughs) 
Well, we're certainly investing in cyber because the National Cyber Force will have military people in it as well as civilians. It'll be a, a joint force in that sense. But in terms of what 77 Brigade do, we definitely believe that the information domain, if you like, is an area that we need to be in a position to be able to act proactively and indeed to defend ourselves. And 77 Brigade was created five or six years ago in order to be able to be employed in environments like Afghanistan, where they were able to identify the information environment and then to work out how you could achieve your message being transmitted principally by social media or the internet as a mechanism to get to the population that mattered. And we've used that sort of capability a lot in the fight against Daesh or ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And indeed, before the Iraqi forces engaged in their acts to free Mosul from ISIS, significant amount of effort went into the information operation via the internet to connect to the local population in Mosul to give them a sense of security that what was coming would be governance that could perhaps be more supportive than the governance that they had at the time. Historically, whenever one of these um, reviews has been done, you tend to find the threats you predict uh, are very rarely the ones you actually face in five years' time. Are you confident that you've got the kit and enough people to be able to cope with whatever's coming? One of the things that makes me confident about this review, perhaps more than others that I've lived with, is for the first time in my career, I think we have the ENDS, as in the integrated review that the Prime Minister announced last Tuesday. We have the ways, as in a new way of operating, but we've also got the means now. And us military people like to talk about strategy being about ends, ways and means. And I think for the first time that I can remember, the ends, the ways and the means are balanced over the course of the next 10 years. Now, of course, politics is inherently unstable, but we have at the moment got a defence programme that, unlike usual defence programmes, which has a sort of tsunami so I am reasonably confident that we're in a better place than we once were. But to the essence of your question, ultimately everything comes down to adaptability. There is always a temptation, isn't there, for the military to fight the last war. The trick, though, is to try and make sure that your interpretation of the future is not so widely off the mark that you aren't able to adapt once you know what the character of that conflict is going to be like. It's really interesting that you say you've got the, the ways and the means, because... One of your predecessors, Lord Richards, has actually criticised the means. He says the fact that the army is shrinking by 10,000 means that it's more likely to get a country like Russia thinking it might not be a bad time to launch a war. I don't know if you go that far. But do you agree with him that having a smaller army is inherently dangerous? Not necessarily. I and mean, I think I would challenge him to tell me what threats are emerging over the course of the next 10 years that will need an army that's larger than 72,500. Because at the end of the day, our army is going to warfight in the NATO alliance with other allies. And on that basis, I would judge that a very well-prepared army, which is well-trained and properly equipped, which can field the warfighting division that NATO requires of us, is what NATO needs. And that's the size of army that is right and proper. And of course, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, of course, when Lord Richards was CDS, that was the time when the army had the largest shrinkage in all time. You're not the only one cutting. But looking at that in particular, he also points out that with an army that size, we couldn't do the Falklands again, we couldn't do Iraq and Afghanistan. What do you make of that? So I would be reasonably confident that we're quite well capable of doing something like the Falklands again. That was one of the reasons why we acquired aircraft carriers. 
and indeed the aircraft carrier with the F-35, once it's properly in service, would be in many ways a much more capable capability, if I can use that term, than what we had when we did it in 1982. So I would question him about that. And in terms of the land component that would need to accompany that, we didn't deploy that many people to the Falklands when we did it. If we, if I recall, it was a couple of brigades. So I'm not sure I would agree with him on that. And in terms of the, the Iraq campaign of 2003, you know, we fielded a, a land component of around 40,000, of which about six, 7,000 were reservists. And I'm in no doubt that we can still field a similar formation to the one that we fielded then. It's like all these things. It depends how long you've got to field it. In that war, it was about 12 weeks. In the previous Gulf War, we fielded it over a period of about six months. So I would judge that we can do that. But the more important thing that we should be judged by is what NATO expects of us. And NATO asks us to provide, through its NATO Readiness Initiative, three high-ready brigades. And the answer is that we will be able to meet the standards that NATO requires of us during the course of this decade. How does NATO feel about the army being cut? You know, we've already heard from, I think, Leon Panetta, former defence secretary, has, has been out saying he thought it was unfortunate. I mean, will it make us more unpopular with the Americans? I don't think so, not judging through the conversations I have with my US opposite number and indeed many of the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But also we are investing significantly in cyber, in nuclear, in the maritime domain, in the air domain, and also over time in the space domain. So as a full spectrum contributor to NATO, that is exactly what the Americans would require of us. And indeed, we'll welcome the fact that we are spending more uh, as a percentage of GDP than any other country other than themselves. Coming up, what might wars of the future look like? To celebrate the beginning of spring, save 50% on full digital access to The Times and The Sunday Times for six months and stay well informed on all the latest stories. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times and subscribe today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
With a smaller but more high-tech army, what will warfare look like in the future? Let's look forward perhaps 10 years. I think the first observation I'd make is that our rivals are trying to win without reverting to hot war. So if you do have to revert to hot war is what we are describing. The ability to be able to warfight is a fundamental aspect of hard power and is a fundamental underpinning of you having the credibility to use your soft power and therefore to be able to compete below the threshold of what we would call war. We expect battlefields of the future to be about a competition between hiding and finding. We expect them to be much more dispersed than they once were. And some of what we've seen over the last five years would undoubtedly support that. Areas like Nagorno-Karabakh, Libya, Syria, these would be more dispersed battlefields. And indeed, given the nature of modern weaponry, precision fires and very powerful missiles these days, you're better off not concentrating mass if you can avoid it. And you're absolutely better off not having a single point of failure anywhere. And a concentration of mass could very easily become a concentration that leads to one place which is vulnerable. And you don't want single points of vulnerability. And I often talk about wanting to move from an industrial age of platforms to an information age of systems. What does that mean? If you can imagine a battlefield where there is significant dispersal and it's small groups of bits of kit and people uh, spread much more thinly across the battlefield, which are able to overwhelm an opponent through their ability to be able to dominate space in a different fashion, with no single points of failure, no single points of weakness, then actually you're beginning to get yourself into a position where you are fighting as a system. Now, technology will make that happen. And I think on the battlefields of the future, you know, I would never have gone on patrol in Afghanistan without an Afghan interpreter. You know, that interpreter would be my eyes and my ears and my ability to be able to connect to the local population. Mm. I bet you in 10 years' time, unit level ships, battalions, whatever it might be on, on a battlefield of the future, will not go to war without a data scientist being at the heart of what they do. Because it'll be the way that you use data, first of all, to store it and place the ability to use robotics on it, but then importantly, to use artificial intelligence to avail yourself of the opportunity that will actually be the determining factor on how you will achieve the systematic effect you need to overwhelm your opponents on future battlefields. I mean, that sounds fascinating. It's, it's bizarre and slightly James Bond. But I mean, what exactly does that mean on the ground for people who don't understand how the systems work, which is most of us at the moment? What will it look like? What will these data scientists be doing? So what we all absolutely understand, because most of us has a smart telephone or whatever else it might be, is that the amount of information is growing exponentially. And indeed, I forget the statistics, but I think all of the information created in the last two years is greater than all of the information created since the birth of time until two years ago. And that is absolutely the same in the military environment. We will have a huge amount of information and very quickly our decision makers will be overwhelmed. It'll be the side that is best able to utilise that information and make decisions based upon it which will prevail. And that's why robotic processing and artificial intelligence will be so important on the modern battlefield because it'll be about creating the tempo you need to outmanoeuvre opponents who are also trying to do the same thing to you. What will it mean for, for your average soldier? Do they require a whole new skill set now? 
Will you still be recruiting the same sort of people? Or? I think I think a lot of the technologies will be intuitive and the, the young of today are much more intuitive with these things than my generation is. So I think, yes, up to a point. But I do think that there will be skill sets that we will need to invest in in a different way. And we, we are already running our career structures for cyber experts in a very different way. I think we will need to recruit people differently. I think we'll also need to accept that we're going to manage their careers across the whole breadth of defence and government probably to achieve the ends that we need to achieve. And that will require a different approach. And is this sort of artificial intelligence that just augments what the soldiers on the ground are doing in terms of the information they're getting? Or are we close to the days when you sort of have killer robots on the loose? Well, we already have autonomy in terms of things like our air defence systems. Drones. Well, no, I don't mean drones. Mm. I mean, if you on a warship, the response in air defence terms will be autonomous. You know, there won't be a man in the loop. And you can easily see how that autonomy could spread into other forms of weapon systems. I think the very interesting question is some of the ethics associated with autonomy. Because if you do take a human out of the loop, how can we trust the artificial intelligence to be making the right sort of decisions that bear upon the ethics and the legal frameworks that are so important within the rules of war. And does it require a new legal framework to be written for it? I think a lot of these technologies we're talking about probably do. We need to think pretty hard about what that does mean for the rules of war. While the rules are still to be written around some of the new forms of technology that we'll use to fight wars, some of the older forms are suddenly back in the spotlight. In October 1952, one of the biggest technological changes to Britain's defences started with an explosion off the coast of Western Australia. With that test, Britain became a nuclear power. But over the coming decades, the world became increasingly worried about the threat of mutually assured destruction. The treaty is ready to be proclaimed in force between the United States of America and the 46 other states that have deposited their instruments of ratification. So in 1970, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty came into force. Uh, this is indeed an historic occasion. I only hope that this was the first milestone on a road which led to reducing the danger of nuclear war. And with that, the UK committed to gradual nuclear disarmament under international law. We are one of the handful specifically recognised by the NPT to possess such dreadful weapons. But the government's new integrated review lifts the cap on the number of nuclear warheads that the UK can hold. And it lifts a ban on using Britain's nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear state if the threat of chemical or biological weapons or emerging technologies makes it necessary. It's a huge change. Elsewhere, other nuclear treaties have been faltering too. It bans ground-launched medium-range missiles. Now President Trump wants to pull out. We're not going to let them violate a nuclear agreement and go out and do weapons, and we're not allowed to. Under President Trump, the US withdrew from the INF, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. America said Russia had broken the agreement banning smaller tactical nuclear weapons. Donald Trump had intended to renegotiate another treaty, START, but President Biden extended it, just in the nick of time, on taking office. 
But it wasn't just our nuclear capability that was promised a boost in the integrated review. And in terms of the sort of technology that they'll be using, I mean, there was a lot made in the integrated review about quantum computing. How does that fit into defence? It depends what you think quantum computing is going to do and, and, and what it means. I mean, a lot of people will tell you that quantum computing could very easily make the oceans transparent. Well, that might mean that you're devising the future submarine to enter service in 40 years' time. You could discover that it's no longer able to discreetly slide around in opaque water. So I think it's, it's oh. those sorts of possibilities that greater brains than mine need to get their minds round. What I would say, though, is that I do think it means we need to return to a former era of experimentation. I mean, what I'm describing is what our forefathers went through when they had to move from sail to steam. The idea that you might end up with technology which allows the oceans to be transparent and submarines to be seen makes it even more surprising that the government and the integrated review has decided to increase the number of nuclear warheads, given that our nuclear warheads are submarine-based. How does that make sense? I'm speculating that the oceans may become transparent. What I'm saying is it's technologies like quantum computing that could make that happen. But presumably we're not the only country looking into technology like that. No, of course not. Very much not. I mean, you know, we, we all well know that the United States and China and our European allies are doing this all the time and you'd expect them to. Given that that's happening, does it make sense for us to be investing in more nuclear warheads now? I'm not sure that that's necessarily that relevant to this particular part of the conversation. On that particular subject, it's not really for me to comment on what's been said about the the nuclear piece of it. What I think is interesting to speculate on is what your subsurface warfare capability might look like. And my bet is, is that you'll be going for a lot of smaller capabilities, more dispensable capabilities, you know, which are able to create mass and dispersion in much the same way as we'll have in the other domains as well. And that may well overcome the extent to which quantum computing could make the oceans transparent. And just going back to, and I'm sorry to keep to keep going on about it, but going back to the nuclear question, were you surprised by the decision to increase the number of warheads and the idea of changing the metric on which they might be used, deciding that they might be used in response to things other than nuclear attack? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to comment on what has been said about the quantity of warheads or all those sorts of things. What I would say in answer to the second part of your question, though, is that it is absolutely necessary that we have a debate about modern deterrence in the context of missiles. Because what our assertive authoritarian rivals have done is to invest significantly in missile technology, particularly conventional missile technology, which have now got much longer ranges and are much more effective than they once were. And you could see how that would be really quite destabilising, particularly when you consider that New Start was saved at the last gasp in February by the Biden administration. But the other arms control agreements that, you know, we grew up with are no longer in existence, particularly INF. And I think there's a big conversation to be had about what deterrence looks like in the context of a world which is populated with many more missiles than it once was. But are we becoming part of the problem? I think the British government's position on this has always been very sound. You know, we are absolutely there for non-proliferation and that's the right place to be. It does seem to go against the spirit of the agreements that we've signed up to, and we're still trying to encourage other people to follow. These are political judgments, which me, as the head of the armed forces, is not necessarily going to be involved in. As the head of the armed forces, do you ever make the argument that that money would be better spent on conventional forces than on a nuclear deterrent? 
I mean, fortunately for me, we have not yet been so bankrupt that I have to argue that we need to invest more in conventional weaponry than nuclear weaponry. The plain fact is that deterrence is a mix of a range of different capabilities. And the trick is how you integrate all of them to achieve that deterrence effect. So what of our place in the world, our relationships with allies and our ability to influence others? It's characterised by a slogan. Global Britain. Global Britain. Global Britain. Global Britain. Global Britain. In July 2019, in his first speech in Parliament as Prime Minister, Boris Johnson said he wanted to make this... Country the greatest place on earth. Adding that... Our newly independent sanctions policy already allows the UK to act swiftly and robustly wherever necessary. And despite the change in leadership in the White House, the Prime Minister was keen to shore up the special relationship. Britain will remain unswervingly committed to NATO and preserving peace and security in Europe. And what about NATO and America? You know, we've almost always, apart from the Falklands, partnered with them in some way during your time in the army in particular. But over the past few years, with a slightly more unpredictable president and President Trump, did that challenge our relationship and our reliance on America and NATO? Did it make us think again about how we operate in the future? I don't think it did in military to military terms, which is really all I'm probably qualified to comment on. I mean, we have an extraordinarily close working relationship with the US military and we exchange officers at a very high level. And indeed, I was lucky enough to command tens of thousands of American Marines and soldiers in southern Afghanistan and made a lot of American friends as a consequence of that. So I think our military relationship is extraordinarily close. Obviously, there is a, a new White House now, things are very different. But there was that moment where it felt like, for example, the deadline for leaving Afghanistan was being dictated by President Trump and potentially you know, his political circumstances. And we would have to follow suit. Has that been a cause for concern? Has it forced us to think about how we would carry out operations if we had to without American help? Whether we can always rely on America in the future? I think on Afghanistan particularly, I mean, you shouldn't lose sight of the fact that that's a NATO operation. And that the mantra that all of the NATO allies have applied to that operation is in together, out together. It's a team effort. So, you know, the United States... felt like States, that was shaky under President Trump for at, least, for at least a moment. Possibly. But the fact of the matter is that as things stand today, it's in together and out together. And whilst there's a great deal of diplomatic activity going on at the moment to try and find a political solution to the challenges of Afghanistan, the reality is that NATO will determine which way we go. A lot of the integrated review also looks at our place in the world now, you know, post-Brexit, global Britain and how we operate and, and the idea of pivoting towards the Asia-Pacific. Defence seems to be sort of very much part of that. How does that change our alliances in the brave new world? You know, this century is going to be the Asian century. It's going to be about the Indo-Pacific. That's where the population growth will be and that's where the economic growth will be. So it's entirely logical uh, that a country like ours with global aspirations, which is very much dependent upon trade, to be fundamentally tilting in that direction. From a defence perspective and a security perspective, though, what's also very clear is that we assure our security through Europe and through the Euro-Atlantic area. So I think it's a question of emphasis. We're certainly not turning away from the Euro-Atlantic area. 
Have those partnerships been challenged by Brexit? I mean, you know, just over the weekend, we had Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, talking about how vaccinations had become a hot issue with European partners. Has all of that been a challenge for defence and defence relationships? I mean, I I can only talk about military-to-military relationships. And no, it's completely unbroken. Um, I've not noticed a break in stride since Brexit occurred in terms of my European partners. We're still the best of friends and we still work very closely together to achieve our military objectives. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, General Sir Nick Carter, Chief of the Defence Staff. The producers today were James Shield and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. We'll be back tomorrow. See you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 